0: well good morning my name is John Allen welcome to Risen Church and uh happy St. Patrick's Day weekend I guess according to the Shamrock Marathon um so no matter what you're going through right now uh, at least you are not currently in a marathon right and so um I am personally thankful for that and uh Some of you may have uh, had to navigate some different traffic patterns this morning. That's always a little bit unexpected, uh, even when it happens every year. I think last year it didn't happen, and so it was like, oh, yeah, that's a thing now. So, um, anyways, uh, so, you know, I don't know if you had to uh, navigate any of that, but I'm glad you're here. Um, It is great to see everybody. One of the things that I always like to remind people about on St. Patrick's Day, or at least St. Patrick's Day weekend... Uh, is that it is a fantastic holiday. Like, St. Patrick's Day is not actually about leprechauns and green beer, believe it or not. And St. Patrick himself was actually not a leprechaun, all right? Um, In fact, it's funny, because the rejection of pagan traditions like leprechauns is actually kind of what St. Patrick's Life Uh, was kind of about. It's kind of ironic. So uh, I don't have time to get into Patrick's story too much this morning, but I do want you to know uh, who Patrick was, that he was actually a very real British man who was kidnapped as a boy and sold into slavery in Ireland. And so after uh, learning their language and being immersed uh, in their culture for years, he eventually escaped and made it back home to Britain. And later in his life, he then had a dream, and in that dream, the Irish people who had, uh, they had no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he knew that because he was there, um, they were calling him to come back and tell them about Jesus in this dream. And so Patrick then dedicated the rest of his life to bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Irish people. And so as the saying goes, before Patrick stepped foot on the island, or, or of Ireland, the people in Ireland... Uh, Nobody was Christian, but by the time he died, nobody in Ireland was pagan. That's, as the saying goes, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. Uh, Some of you are like, I know some Irish people. That's not true, Um, but... uh, (laughs) But it's actually not that much of an exaggeration, especially by the time he died. In fact, in just 30 years of preaching the gospel and baptizing people and appointing clergy and and all the things that he did, Patrick saw over 120,000 Irish baptized and more than 300 churches were planted just in his 30-year ministry. That's significant. And so he died on March 17th. 461 A.D., but his witness to the love of God in Christ to the Irish people spreads throughout the world through the generations that have been affected by him. Um, And so these generations of Irish descendants have been utterly transformed through the sacrificial obedience of Patrick um, and his team of church planters and disciple makers. And so uh, I I, want to point out that they didn't try to bring Roman culture to the Irish. That's important. That's one of the things he did that was very different from many, uh, I guess, missionaries of the time. They didn't just bring Roman culture. They didn't sell the Irish on how Jesus could make their lives better. His team introduced them to the Savior and King. In truth. In fact, the Irish context of Patrick's day, like, in that time, to follow Jesus meant to draw persecution from the established druid culture that's what was had hold of ireland and so in other words christianity wasn't simply a religion that you could just associate with to follow jesus meant you truly understood that he was lord and savior because it may actually cost you your life that was the context it's why patrick once wrote daily i expect murder fraud or captivity but i fear none of these the greatest gift in my life is to know and love God, to serve Him as my highest joy. So for Patrick, the gift was the giver, right? And so I, I think this is a major reason why the gospel spread so effectively there, and now today even in like, areas of pretty severe persecution. It's just like Revelation 11:12 12 says, is that they conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Because following Jesus then is seen as costly, and yet therefore it, it's presented as it truly is, and Jesus is seen as he truly is, which is matchlessly Valuable, right? So Jesus is, is seen and presented as as like precious, eternally precious. Right? He's received and then he's introduced to people as the single source of all true hope and true joy and true salvation. And yet all of that gets so easily dismissed in a society that treats him as just a means for our own glory and our attainment of our own personal agendas, right? Like, when we treat Jesus as simply a tool to be used in order to attain our personal goals, we just devalue his name and his character, and and we devalue his mission into a false gospel that's really about our own vanity, right? I mean, isn't that what happens? Like, when Jesus is presented or received for the sake of gaining anything other than Jesus, It's actually a misrepresentation of who he is. He becomes just another means to attain what we actually cherish instead of being the very essence of all we were created to cherish. So this is probably the most pervasive temptation we face in our society. Like It's it's that false gospel and half-truth that declares that Jesus is Savior but leaves out the fact that he's also Lord. And so it's, it's this thing that's void of grace and truth because it twists Christ's purpose into a self-centered, sort of me-centered, self-serving, me-centered worship of, of me, <laughs> right? My ways, my agenda. Like, that's, not, that's false Christianity. And, and, and it's not about what God desires. Ultimately, it becomes all about what I desire from God. And if those desires aren't met, like, God Almighty somehow becomes less. He becomes less useful. And then he's easily dismissed, right? But the truth is, God's never changed, right? We just created a plastic version of him in our image, and we tried to sell him alongside all the other worthless self-help tools out there. But when we open the scriptures, when we look at the Bible and we see what he's really like, it can be a jolt of truth. It can be even jarring, right? Like, let's be honest, man. If you've been drinking from the Kool-Aid version of our society's Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible is shocking, even maybe a little confusing, right? He does things and he says things that don't necessarily jive with how we think he should behave, he confronts us, and he challenges us, and yet all the while, he loves us, and he does it perfectly. So right up front here, before we take a deep dive into our passage this morning, I want to make a sort of public service announcement. Like if, if some of what we go through um, this morning or any morning here, as we're going through the Bible, if it gets confusing, right, right? Or, or, or you, if the Jesus that you're reading about here doesn't seem to fit with the Jesus you imagined or thought he was, then instead of dismissing his word outright, I, I want to invite you to lean in. I want to invite you to lean into even community and to ask questions. Because we need to be aware 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 through 4, says this it was a warning. Um, and, and it said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, so I'm not up here presenting John Allen's opinion as truth. I'm presenting the Bible. I'm presenting Jesus. I want you to take a look at who Jesus is as he's presented in the word of God, right? And so instead of pulling back and, and looking for someone to scratch those itching ears and affirm that plastic Jesus, Like, let's look at the Word of God. And so if it's confusing, then I want to encourage you to join a community group, lean in, give the benefit of the doubt, like, come talk to me. I'd love to get to know you, right? Like, let's do this. Let's walk through this. So the truth is, if Jesus never challenges you, though, you probably have a plastic version of him in mind, right? And so when the heat really gets turned up, which it does in this life, that plastic version is going to melt, okay? Okay? So let's behold the true Jesus. So hear me. I also want to say this. We all struggle with this. All of us struggle with this on one level or another. Like, we're all fully capable of taking his glory and his grace for granted in one way or another in any given moment, right? So the point here isn't to wallow in the condemnation of it. The point here is to turn away from it entirely and behold the true Jesus for who he is. Like, when you realize you've been thinking the wrong things about him, just be like, yeah, well, that's kind of normal. Now I get to learn who he really is, right? Thank God for his mercy and grace. Does that make sense? And so then we see how precious and merciful and, and gracious he actually is, and we get to come to him. And then here's the best part. I want you to view the Lord, the God the Father, calling you to come to him with a smile on his face. And it's not an irritated scowl. It's a smile. It's the smile of a knowing and loving father. Not necessarily your idea of an earthly father, Right? I'm talking about the true father. I'm talking about the smile that shines with that never-ending, unrelenting, unconditional, steadfast, loving kindness that emanates from his very essence towards his children. That's the God of the Bible, okay? He's not plastic. He's not subject to your emotions, and he's not subject to our culture. He's never changing. He's gracious. He's glorious, and he's available to us all in Christ. And this is the heart behind this whole series that we've been going through uh, in the book of John that we're calling Sharing Life Like Christ. So it's a series that's uh, about the specific interactions that Jesus has with particular people throughout the gospel of John or the book of John and so we've been taking in how Jesus specifically interacts with people. We've seen his character on display. And we've, the, the, we've seen the questions that he asks and the patience that he demonstrates. Like we see the things that he values and the way that he navigates uh, uh, those people's insecurities, their egos and their misdirections. And he draws them into the grace and truth of God. And so as we take in how he interacted with them then, we get to also take in the way he interacts with us now. Because the same way that Jesus navigated their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections is the same way he navigates our insecurities and, and our egos and our misdirections today. All right. So the point of this entire series has been about experience the tr- experiencing the true Jesus for who he truly is and then sharing that life that we experience in Christ with each other Um. Our city and beyond. But if you want to share life with others like Christ, then you have to share life in Christ. Right? Like you can't be a conduit to others of something you haven't experienced yourself. Right? It's all about the overflow. Like, it's all about beholding Jesus, experiencing Jesus, being loved by Jesus, and fully satisfied in Christ alone. That's not just a song we sing, it's a life we live, right? And so when that happens, like, you'll begin to see that every good gift in this world is actually just a sign that points us to the ultimate goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Like, I want you to see that whether it's the love of your spouse Whether it's the beauty of a sunset or the flavor of like a perfectly cooked steak, which is really good. It's all just a commentary on the ultimate goodness of Jesus Christ. That's a life of worship. Like it's truly all about Jesus. So this morning, we've come to John chapter 6. And so far in this series, as I said, we've looked at specific interactions that Jesus has had with specific individuals, right? But this morning... Chapter 6 presents sort of a different approach to us. Like this morning, we're going to look at the way Jesus interacts with two different kinds of people. Not just individuals, but two different groups of people. The first is the crowd. And the second kind are his disciples. So both groups are actually following Jesus. Both groups are followers of Jesus. In fact, both passionately seek him out but they have very different motives. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. The crowd seeks the gift, but the disciple seeks the giver. The crowd seeks the gift, but the disciple seeks the giver. So we started this series in John chapter 1 with, with You know, the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples, to his first disciples. And he asked them, first thing he said, first thing he asked, what do you seek? Right? As we're about to see, the answer to that question is actually what determines whether you're actually a disciple of Jesus or simply part of the crowd. So I ask you this morning, what do you seek? Why are you here? What do you desire? Is it Jesus or simply something you want from Jesus? Do you seek the giver or do you simply seek the gift? The best news of all here that I really want you to behold is that Jesus is both the ultimate gift and the giver in and of himself. There's a lot of power in that. Look with me at John Chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to really hone in on what Jesus presents in verse 22 through 37, but um, it's all kind of set up with two miracles that take place in the beginning of the chapter. So I'm going to briefly run through it, and we're going to dive in. Here we go. Verse 1 says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now that motive is important. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Time out. Stop right here. I want you to, before you go forward, I want you to see the setting. Get it in your mind. Jesus goes up on a mountain with his disciples, and they're in sort of like an elevated position, and they're able to see what we'll learn later is to be a, a crowd of thousands coming. It says 5,000, but it's actually just a reference to the men. Most historians, theologians, commentators pretty much all agree this was probably upwards of about 20,000 people. Okay? And verse 4 then gives this seemingly incidental detail, but it's actually really important okay, for context. It's really important. We're told... The Passover or the Feast of the Jews was at hand. That's not an insignificant detail. It matters if you want to understand what's happening. So, you need to get what the Passover was. It was this annual feast that was held in Jerusalem to celebrate Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt back in Exodus 12 in the Old Testament. All right, follow me because this is important. Whether you're familiar with this or not, it's important. It's called the Passover because of the tenth plague that was visited upon the Egyptians that ultimately led to the release of God's people from slavery. Like God sent Moses to tell the Pharaoh to let his people go, but he wouldn't. And so God visited nine different plagues that he struck Egypt with. And each time after each plague, Pharaoh's like, okay, okay, stop, I'll let him go. And then before he does let him go, he changes his mind, right? And then finally, it's the tenth plague. And this is the tenth plague that sealed their deliverance from slavery. So, through Moses, God told each Jewish family to sacrifice a lamb and then paint its blood on their doorposts and lintels. So, two doorposts and then the lintel above. Paint the blood of the sacrificial lamb on this, these wooden beams that go vertically and horizontally with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And then they're told to feast on the lamb that they sacrificed. This all matters. And that night, God said he'd send a messenger of death, or like an angel of death, who would kill the firstborn son of any family whose doorway was not covered in the blood of the lamb. As this angel of death came to each doorway covered in the blood, each household, the angel would pass over their home, and each family would be saved. The families who had hidden themselves under the blood of the lamb and had consumed its flesh, which was emphasized as a detail that's often overlooked today. Like, this was not the night for children to be like, I don't like lamb, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, like it's not the night to give in to picky eaters, right? Like, we're about to see in John 6 that it's not an an insignificant detail. So now there's a lot of prophetic symbolism in what God's asking his people to do that night. There's even an allusion to the covenant God made with Noah through the use of the doorway, right, where salvation came to those who entered through one door on the ark in Genesis 6 and 7, Or, or God's covenant that he made in blood with Abraham in Genesis 12, or the fact that the blood of the lamb was to cover the wooden doorpost, which evokes the blood of Christ himself on the wooden cross horizontally and vertically, right? And so night comes, and the angel passed over these families who were nourished by the lamb and covered by his blood. But for everyone else, including the Most High King or the Pharaoh, their firstborn son was killed. And it was through the death of the firstborn son of the Most High King that the people of God were delivered from their enslavement. If you have spiritual eyes to see, then you can see this is all about a picture of what God would do through Jesus Christ at the cross and through his resurrection. And yet, and yet, Passover was and still is so often simply celebrated as just a political achievement of one nation over another. Just a tradition. Totally missing the point. Entirely. Moses was heralded as this a, as a great leader and Passover became this powder keg of revolution as the oppressed people of God were awaiting their Messiah to, to, the Messiah to deliver them from the Romans or in their minds, their modern day Egyptian captors and oppressors. That's how they viewed Passover then and that's, what they were expecting as the Messiah showed up. And so it's important to realize these crowds are showing up here in John 6. They're all there to see Jesus as the Messiah King that they wanted to overthrow the Romans. So this crowd had an agenda, and they were happy to receive Jesus on their terms. And this is the context of this approaching crowd. Back to verse 6. In chapter 6. So Jesus said, go away, you self-centered animals. It's Not what he says. I'm just kidding. In fact, what he actually says shows his true character. That's probably what I would want to say. You know, when you realize the context of all this, that's kind of what you want to say, but that's not what he says. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. All right, time out again. There's an allusion here to Psalm 23 that I want you to see real quick. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you see it? I want you to see it. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So why didn't he let him make him king? Like he, he's the king, so he was. Their motives are off though. They misunderstood Psalm twenty-three. They wanted a king who could do great things for them. They wanted a king who could lead them for their name's sake. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to lead us in passive righteousness for his name's sake, not ours. That's important. He came to lead us to the giver, not just the gifts, which is the ultimate gift. Again, what do you seek? Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Right? These aren't still waters anymore. Things are getting difficult. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately, say immediately, immediately, The boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, don't don't miss this. I love this. Like, most of the time we read this story about Jesus walking on water, most of the time this is preached or or read from Matthew 14, which gets into how Peter steps out of the boat and walks on water to Jesus. And that's all great, fantastic story. Go read it. It's awesome. But when John writes this account, he knew that people had already read about all that, right? So he doesn't feel the need to go there. He wants to communicate something else. He's going a little bit deeper. And so he's emphasizing that the disciples were glad to take Jesus into the boat. Like there was a storm. It was scary. John was there. He's part of this whole thing. They were insecure. They're uncertain about where they're going and how they're going to get there. And the adversity was overwhelming and confusing. But then Jesus comes to them and he's walking above it all. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And in my favorite part, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So it's not that Jesus calmed the storm. He didn't. Although we know he can and he has before. But, but it's not that he calmed the storm and it's not that he helps them do amazing things like walk on water. Like we, he can and we, we, we've seen him do it before. Like he's done it. That's not the point, though. The point here is that Jesus is the destination. He is the gift. He is the reward. He is the point. He's not just a means to calm the storms of adversity in their lives. If that's all he is to you, then you're going to begin to view all adversity in your life as a sign that God's not good simply because your world's not calm. The truth is, though, that you just misunderstood who God is. And where God is in the midst of it all. He's the one who walks above the chaos, and He's come to you in the midst of the chaos, and He's gotten in the boat with you. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Even in the darkest of nights, even in the most chaotic of storms, he's with us. Whether he calms the storms or not, that's not the point. The point is he's with you. And it doesn't matter if it's a spiritual storm, or if it's a mental storm, or a physical storm, or an emotional storm. The only real question is, is he with you? That's it. When you realize Jesus is with you, suddenly the storms and adversity, they don't seem so significant. Like suddenly his presence is more precious even than the shore. Because he is the destination. Like the disciples are simply glad to take Jesus into the boat because he's all they need. To be with him where he is. That's the destination. If you want to know the truth, that's why Peter got out of the boat in Matthew 14. He wanted to be where Jesus was. He is the gift. Jesus himself is what true disciples are seeking. See, the crowd just says, oh, wait, he didn't calm the storm? We'll crucify him, and we'll find another Savior who will. right? That's why he was Hosanna and Savior at the beginning of the week. And they're shouting, the same people are shouting, crucify him at the end of the week. Like, you know, I I tried Jesus, but he didn't work for me. That's because he's not your employee. (laughs) Remember in John 1 when Andrew and and John, they start following Jesus again, and he turns around, they're following, he turns around and says, What are you seeking? You remember what their response was? I love it. It was perfect. They respond by then asking him, where are you staying? They just want to know where he is. Where he's going, we want to be with you. That's what they're seeking. They're seeking Jesus. He is their destination. Where you go, I go. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten, uh, eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, and then verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the implication here is that they're wondering, like, if Jesus has made it to Capernaum without getting into the boat, like, how did he get there? Like, he's not here. Where is he? Right? Like, is this another miracle? What's going on here? So they're working hard here to find this miracle worker from God. Right? They believed he was a miracle worker. They've seen it. And they're following him for it. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, how'd you get here so fast, huh? Did you do another miracle, huh? Huh? Maybe, maybe part the sea like Moses, huh? Yeah, but Jesus doesn't need to part the stormy seas when he can trample the chaos beneath his feet entirely, right? Remember, his disciples witnessed that miracle, and yet their joy simply came from taking him into the boat. Maybe they were like, at this point, you know, like I, I would be like, like Jesus, tell him, Tell him what you did. It was awesome. You know? But Jesus doesn't go there with the crowd. Jesus answered them. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Oof. what are you seeking the crowd seeks a king to give them what they want they're looking to jesus to get their needs met which is good like in some ways that like that is good but they're looking to him to fulfill the wrong needs like they seek external religion that makes them feel good about themselves but keeps intimate relationship with god at a distance the crowd seeks a means to their own ends, they seek to use the name of God, the character of God, the ways of God for their own vain purposes. This is what it truly means to take God's name in vain. It's to take or or to seek the gift instead of the giver. Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19 says this, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. So he's not condescending or elitist here. Like Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians in tears. He's heartbroken over what he's about to say. He says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Jesus points them away from those earthly things here. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And so they, they, they want like action steps here, right? Like, they're, they're totally task-oriented, which almost always ignores relationship, right? Like, they're like, what, what, what do I need to do? Like, are we, are we talking like seven Hail Marys here? Like, maybe join a Bible study, give 10% of my income to the church? Like, oh, I know, I know, I know. Win an argument with an atheist. That'll give me some points, right? <laughs> but they're missing the point. Jesus is trying to get them to see that first and foremost, it's not about what they can or cannot do. It's about what they believe, specifically who they believe in, right? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I love the way he words this. Like he said, I love the way he words this. He's saying that even the work of believing in Jesus is the work of God. Even the work of believing is God's work. Like you can almost hear their like performance-oriented hearts explode in confusion. Their minds are like, "What? You know? Like, how does belief work?" And how is it God's work, right? It's just like, I don't know what to do. But instead of going there, they simply drop back to their original goal, which is just getting Jesus to do a miracle for them. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. No, They're quoting the Old Testament. This is the same crowd from the day before. Jesus literally just performed a sign. He literally just did it in the wilderness. And it was a sign that that provided bread for them. Like this is the same crowd, but they totally missed what the sign was pointing to because that's what happens when people just want the gift and not the giver. They just want the sign, but completely miss what or who the sign is pointing to. Like they're taking all of this stuff in and just taking the bread and not, it's like they're biting the hand that's feeding them, just completely forgetful. Like they're talking to Jesus about how Moses led the people through the sea. And how bread from heaven was provided in the wilderness. And how Moses met with God on the mountain. Okay? And the signs are all being shown here in John 6. If you have the spiritual eyes to see it, it's declaring Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus not only met with God on the mountain. Jesus not only split the sea and provided bread for the people like Moses. Jesus is the God Moses met with on the mountain. Jesus walks on the sea, and he not only provided bread from heaven, he is the bread from heaven. In fact, all the stories in Exodus weren't about Moses. It was all about Jesus. He's both the gift and the giver, and he's standing right in front of them. But they're so consumed by their own desires that they're missing him entirely because they just wanted more bread to fill their bellies. Look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he said to him, sir, give us this bread always. (laughs) What? if, If you've been with us, like, It's just like chapter 3. Nicodemus in chapter 3 did the same thing. It's just like the woman at the well in chapter 4. Jesus uses material things to illustrate spiritual truths, but they completely miss it. Like, he tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again, and he's like, wait, what? I need to crawl back in my mother's womb? Like, that one got weird real quick. (laughs) And then, and then when he tells the woman at the well that if she knew who it is that's asking for a drink, she would have asked him, and he would have given her living water. And she's like, wait, you don't even have a bucket. Like, and And, and here the crowd is thinking he's talking about physical bread for their bellies still. Like, I want you to see that the problem here is not that these people are unintelligent. This is not an intelligence issue. It's a belief issue. It's why we don't need to just water it down more. He's not speaking over their heads. He's speaking to their spirit in a way that they just aren't used to. He's helping them turn their spiritual eyes and ears on. And he's doing it very patiently and very graciously. Now, of course, he's also concerned with their physical needs. This is important. I want you to see this. It's why he actually fed them with bread and he heals so many people physically throughout his ministry, right? Even for those that don't come to him as Lord, they don't even receive him as Lord and Savior. He still shows them compassion and mercy and cares for them and feeds them and heals them. That's how good he is, right? But as we talked about last week, it's all designed to point to the deeper spiritual need the need to be spiritually reborn, the need to drink from spiritual living waters, and the need to eat the spiritual bread of life. He's speaking to a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst that can only be satisfied in Christ alone, who is himself all satisfying. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now this should have been some, like, like, I, I, like a mic drop moment, right? Like this should have been like the point of, uh, of belief, like it was for the woman at uh, the well. right? When he does this with her, and he's like, I am who you're looking for. I am the Messiah. I am the great I am, essentially, what he does there, when she, she immediately confesses belief and ran off to invite everyone she knew to come and see Jesus. But for the crowd, that's not what this moment represents. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You've seen me, and yet you still don't believe. They only see the earthly thing that's right in front of them instead of the heavenly reality that it's all pointing to, right? Like, what's a sign? Think about what a sign is. A sign points to something greater, and and it doesn't have to be a miracle. It could just be your husband or your wife, right? Marriage, great example, marriage is designed by God to point you to his love for you in Christ. It's a sign, right? If you worship the sign instead of the one that the sign points to, you're headed for a whole lot of confusion and a pretty big bitter letdown. Our earthly fathers are not God the Father, but they are signs that point to him. And when they don't, it's because they're fallen versions. But they were always just designed to point us to him. Because it's his love, it's his affirmation, it's his protection, it's his security, it's his guidance, it's his provision, it's his kindness, it's his wisdom, and it's his delight that's the most real and most available thing that even the best earthly father could ever express to you. That's what we have. Jesus has invited us into his father-son relationship with God Almighty. Like, don't get stuck on the sign. Look to the one the sign's pointing to. And this is all ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. He is what we've hungered for our entire lives. He is the bread of life. Guys, one of the most helpful questions to ask when you find yourself in these patterns of sin, like, and you're just like, I don't know how to get out of these cycles and these patterns. Like, the most helpful question you can let, I would say, let the Spirit of God ask you and plumb the depths of your heart in is, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Like, what are you looking for in that girl or in that guy that you're not finding in Christ? Like What are you looking for in alcohol that you're not finding in him? Seriously, what is that pornography providing that Jesus doesn't? Now That sounds silly maybe if you don't have the spiritual eyes to see it. But the truth is, is that issue is mostly due to a desire to feel wanted, to feel able, to feel like you have what it takes or to feel desired or delighted in. Like there's a deep need for affirmation in the human heart, like and it gets twisted into this digital counterfeit, which ultimately only cheapens and debases you rather than affirms you. It's counterfeit. Because Jesus is the only one who is truly all satisfying. His ways are true and he's good and he's upright. So the question is what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now, just like the Jews grumbled about Moses and Exodus while they were in the wilderness because they didn't like eating the manna from heaven, verse 41 now says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Okay? Again, you see the comparisons? It's almost like it's all tied together or something. It's not a coincidence. Jesus is showing us that he is the one the Jews in Exodus were truly grumbling against, not just Moses. And so they continue to grumble, just like today when we grumble against that which is difficult, even though it's from God and for our good, we tend to grumble. Right? Because when Jesus is with you, he can turn the storms to your benefit. The question is, do you know he's with you? Are you leaning into him, or are you just like, stupid storm? Like, I get it. I really do. (laughs) Trust me. This is something we all struggle with. Okay? But I want you to see how Jesus patiently walks with us, graciously is there with us in the midst of it all. And he's simply saying, turn your eyes to me. Behold me. I am all satisfying, even in the midst of the storm. Grumbling is setting our sights on the storms, right? Not our Savior. Now, the fate of the crowd of grumblers against Moses was that they were consumed by the earth, according to The book of Numbers, chapter 16, like both literally and figuratively. Figuratively, they were consumed by their earthly ways, and it eventually ate them alive with bitterness. But literally, though, despite years of God bearing with them, eventually the earth actually opened up and swallowed the crowd of grumblers whole. That happened. Now, here in John 6, Jesus is graciously and patiently bearing with this crowd and even engaging with them. However, without repentance and belief, their fate will ultimately be the same as the crowd in Numbers 16. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your your, your fathers, your forefathers, ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Like, if I'm a disciple here, I'm thinking, like, Jesus, tone it down a bit. we got a revolution happening. You're losing them with the whole cannibal thing. Like, let's back off. <laughs> but Jesus doubles down. Why? Because the issue here is, is, is unbelief. And he knows it. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In other words, I am the greater manna. I am what manna was pointing to. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So he's in like an official capacity here as he's... As he's saying all these what seems to be crazy things. So what is he talking about? Like, is he talking about communion here, maybe? Like, is that what he's referring to? Kind of. But I think it's actually a lot deeper than that. Again, historically, people have tried to make this a one-dimensional physical thing that they can externalize and turn into an action item. Right? As long as I go to church and receive communion, then I'll be good to go no matter what the rest of my life looks like and no matter what my relationship with Jesus actually is. It gets externalized to an earthly thing. But that's still the heart of a striving person in unbelief. It's still task-oriented instead of relational. It's about the physical bread instead of the true bread that it's pointing to, which is Jesus himself. It's looking to the sign rather than who the sign is pointing to. So yes, I do think that this applies to communion, but communion is just one of the signs and just one of the ways that we eat His flesh and drink His blood. So so, what does He mean? Like we're gonna have to use those spiritual eyes to interpret this. And and hear me. This makes communion no less sacred. This actually, this concept is what makes communion. Like Super sacred. okay? It, it doesn't make his press any le- his presence any less available or present during communion. In fact, when you get this, you realize that he's exponentially present during communion, because of what is implied here. okay? So, so what is implied? What does this mean? Again? Got to use their spiritual eyes to interpret. All right? So, also, let's let some scripture interpret scripture. Look back at John 1. Again, what are you seeking? Then in John 2, we see Jesus turns water into wine during a wedding feast in Cana. Wine that he told us during his last celebration of Passover with his disciples represents his blood poured out on the cross as forgiveness for our sins which would have brought up images of the blood on the wooden doorposts since they were celebrating Passover. And let's not forget that important commandment to all the families during Passover to be sure to eat the flesh of the sacrificial lamb. For them it was an act of obedience and an act of faith. It nourished them from the inside out and it protected them from death and delivered them from bondage. It, that bondage was physical in their enslavement in Egypt, but it was a representation and pointing them to their ultimate bondage in, uh, of sin, their enslavement to their own sin and their own flesh. And so it all happened as they hid themselves under the blood of the Lamb, who was their salvation, right? Like, we don't look back at Passover as the center point of creation, guys passover was looking forward to the cross and what jesus would do for us all because this is the gospel that god became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die and he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life and it's an eternal life that starts now the moment we place our faith and our hope in what he's done for us at the cross and through the resurrection it's an eternal life that starts now not just one day when we die it starts now as we have total access to his spirit that fills us up and indwells us and overflows within us, drinking deeply of that living water because of his blood poured out for us and his body broken for us, right? So I want you to have the spiritual eyes to see all of this and, and as it comes together. And maybe if you don't, and this is just like you're just like drinking from a fire hydrant here, go to community group, talk about it. And if you still don't get it, come to the, talk to me. Talk to somebody that it does. It's all good. Let's walk through this together. There's so much. And, and otherwise, just like, get what you can and just keep on moving, right? So Jesus leads them. I want you to see this, all right? Jesus leads them into the wilderness just as God did through Moses. He provides bread for them in the wilderness just as God did through Moses, But Jesus steps it all up, literally. The manna he provides isn't just some wafers in the desert. He provides barley loaves and fish, and they all eat to their fill. They were just in survival mode in the desert. But when Jesus comes, they're thriving. And he doesn't just part the waters like he did through Moses. He literally stepped it up, and he walks on the sea. Jesus isn't saying, I'm greater than Moses. He's saying, I'm the one who did all those things for Moses. Jesus went up on a mountain like Moses went up on Mount Sinai to behold God. But Jesus didn't just go up to behold God. Jesus is the one Moses was beholding. If you don't believe me, here's a little homework. Go read Matthew 17. There's a little passage there called the Transfiguration where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he suddenly starts glowing. And somehow Moses is there. What? Yes, that's in the New Testament. Time back in. What does all this mean? He's saying, like, what's he saying? Don't get caught up in the signs. Look to the one the signs are pointing to and believe. Don't get caught up in the gift. Look to the giver and believe. Feast on Jesus as an act of faithful obedience and spiritual nourishment. This is the difference between the crowd and the true disciple of Jesus. Like, the chapter ends with even many of his disciples turning their back on him and no longer walking with him which only exposes that they were never truly disciples to begin with. Like John himself later puts it in 1 John two nineteen. they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John 6, back to John 6, verse 67. Here we go. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's the difference. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas, again, had his own agenda. This is what you see later on. He wasn't satisfied in Christ alone. Some come to Christ simply to escape the fires of hell, right? But, but they're still just part of the crowd. And their lives reflect it. Like, some come to Christ to be impressive and knowledgeable, maybe. But in John five thirty nine and 40... Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You can know all the Bible passages there are. But if you don't look to the one that even this Bible is pointing to, it's pointless. Amen? Guys, it really is all about Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus and loving Jesus, enjoying Jesus, delighting in Jesus, knowing and being known by him, loved by him, delighted in by him. He's the gift and he's the giver. And and, and so so again, what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Now, there's two things about eating that I, I think Jesus is getting at here. Like first, you gotta eat to survive, right? That's just a fact. Like just eating to survive just like it, we come to Christ and believe in what he's done for us through the cross and resurrection. Right? But if you only eat to survive, you're missing out on so much. But food is a gift. I like food. Food's a gift. It's to be enjoyed, and it's to be treasured. It's to, you're, to sit down and to savor it. It brings satisfaction, and it goes way beyond just survival, right? And that's what I think Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, don't just come to me to escape hell. His desire is our enjoyment and delight. like To see him and to savor him and to enjoy him and to find our soul's satisfaction in him. Like, if your Christianity is just about your salvation, your Christianity is missing the whole flavor of the joy of Jesus and the whole point. Like, you are saved to enjoy Him. So, so, so this is why we spend time with Him as our daily bread. He is our daily bread. Enjoy Him, let Him nourish you. This is what separates the crowd from the disciples. I heard someone once say that the prosperity gospel is like marrying somebody for their money. (laughs) I love that. Like it's like being a divine gold digger, right? (laughs) It's not true love, right? And it's not what God's after. Finally, how do you lead someone from being part of the crowd to being a disciple? How do you share life like Christ? You don't point them to the signs you point them to what the signs point to you point them to jesus like i can go out here on the street corner and heal somebody right just because you heal somebody and perform some miraculous miracle that blows people's minds it's meaningless if you don't give them the gospel this society is no longer a society that doesn't believe in the supernatural For the most part, people believe that there is something more out there. They just don't know about King Jesus. When Jesus does the miraculous in the physical realm, he's doing it to point to the true spiritual miracle, which is salvation and relationship and redemption in Christ alone. That's what it's about. So if people don't understand this, if maybe if you don't understand this, Right. If these things are confusing, like again, we don't, don't, don't just water it down. Don't water the truth down. Just be patient and continuing, pointing them to Jesus and His Word, bearing with them as Jesus did to help them see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears. Be patient as those things develop. And maybe they're developing in you. Be patient. Keep coming. Lean in. Walk by faith. Maybe you've been around church or religion your whole life. Don't get frustrated just because God's showing you new things. Be thankful. Lean in. Pray. Ask. Humble yourself. Say, help me, Lord. And he will. I promise. Don't let your comfort or pride isolate you in unbelief. Let's behold Jesus and his word together in spirit and truth and feast on him. I'm going to close with a famous prayer from St. Patrick called the breastplate. I love it. This was his prayer, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in the fort, which is like his home, Christ in the chariot seat, which is like traveling by land, Christ in the stern, which is like traveling by water, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me. Christ in every eye that sees me. And my favorite one is the last one. Christ in every ear that hears me. Whew! That's a man who understood that it really is all about Jesus. Let's pray.